Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast. Listen in as your host, Jimmy Atkinson, invites industry leaders to share their best OZ insights and investment strategies. From market updates to fund launches, policy news, tax mitigation strategies, and more, we cover it all here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm Jimmy Atkinson. Given current somewhat negative investor and consumer sentiment, are we possibly in a period of great opportunity for real estate investors? Cyrus Opportunity Zone Fund's co-founder and principal Mike Hardy joins me today to discuss this topic and more. Mike joins me today from the greater Los Angeles area. Mike, great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show and welcome. Jimmy, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. You bet, Mike. Uh, great to be back on with you. I, I just met you uh, earlier this month. I didn't know you last year, but uh, 2023 is already bringing new connections. Uh, so now, Mike, a lot of our listeners are Opportunity Zone super fans. I like to call them sometimes. So I'm sure some of our audience of high net worth investors and advisors may have heard of the Cyrus Opportunity Zone Fund already. But uh, for any who aren't yet familiar, can you give us a brief introduction to Cyrus and what's your role there? Sure, absolutely. I'm I am a co-founder and principal of the fund, and I'm an OZ super fan as well. Just for the record, um, stumbled upon it sort of in an odd way. Um, was uh, was co-presenting with a number of folks on just creative real estate strategies and covering 1031 uh, DSTs, charitable remainder trusts, um, 721 provision. And this is right a couple of years ago when the OZ was the new kid on the block, and we couldn't find an OZ expert at the time, and so. I ended up uh, taking a segment as an investor to present and spent, you know, the better part of a month just in the tax law understanding and came to see this is just an amazing solution that could solve a lot of pain for me personally. And so that was the backstory that launched the Cyrus OZE fund. So I've been in the, the mortgage banking and real estate investing space for a long time. And um, we've we've set up our fund really to maximize what I think is a sweet spot, which is just kind of like above the mom and pop level and be below the Wall Street fund. Um, I find that there's massive inefficiencies that exist in that space. And that combined with 20 years of relationships, we get a lot of looks at things that just kind of don't hit the market um, that get to us. And so that's where we've been able to do real well. So that's a little bit of the backstory. That's great. And I want to dive further into that backstory on your mortgage business and your fund strategy and that that sweet spot that you mentioned too between the mom and pop and the the institutional funds and 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 get a little better explainer or a deeper explainer on on why those inefficiencies exist and how you're able to take advantage of it a little bit later in the show today but uh, first I want a little more background on you personally Mike can you give us a little bit about your backstory and and what makes your background um, what, what about your background makes you somewhat unique in the industry? Sure. Well, you know, kind of interesting. I, uh, I actually grew up poor. I, I lived, um, some of my early memories were living in a, uh, trailer. My, my sisters and I, two younger sisters were in the far corner and my parents in the other. And I remember when we bought our first home, like the world just opened up for me. And so couple of lessons from that. I was able to, in my early years, just coming from not having a lot of things and then watching my dad, he was getting his PhD at the time and then ended up doing really well later in life. But I was able to 
witness what it's like to really not have anything and then watch some fairly significant success happen. So it really gave me an appreciation for um, the American dream, for what's possible, uh, and for a combination of hard work and innovation and creative thinking. So that's really my backstory. Um, I was a pre-med undergraduate in college. I thought I wanted to be a doctor, ended up um, completing the degree, had zero desire to go to medical school, um, ended up uh, becoming and working as a financial advisor, formally trained as a financial advisor before finding this amazing world of real estate. So that's a little bit of the backstory, but growing up without much, you see the world differently and I just see opportunities everywhere. And that's what the uh, opportunity zone um, world is for me. It's just, it seems like there's so much opportunity that exists. Part of it is just staying focused, but I'm a, I'm a big fan of what was created with the 2017 tax act. Yeah. I, th I think we all are. I, I refer to it as the greatest uh, tax benefit that has ever been created. Um, somewhat, somewhat exaggeration, possibly sometimes, but it does grab people's attention. Also, for some people, it's not an exaggeration at all. It really is one of the greatest tax incentives ever created. So one of my business partners, Ashley Tyson, co-founder at OZ Pros, has a phrase he likes to use. Uh, one of the services he likes to bring is the democratization of opportunity zones or bringing this somewhat complex structure to, to the masses. Does that resonate? With you at all, Mike? Do you are do you, do you kind of view yourself as as bringing these once uh, only held by institutions or 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 large investors or big firms these real estate private equity real estate investments to the little guy for for lack of a better term? I, you know, I love that. Um, that actually really resonates with me, and I feel like a little bit of a bridge. And I, I'm shocked at how many very smart, well-connected people are still not aware of it and the power of it. It's just, it's mind-blowing to me. And I remember my first aha moment, it was just like, is this too good to be true? This just seems too good to be true. And it took me a while to get up to speed and realize like, this is a gift. I mean, this is once a, you know, once a every 100 years, every 50 years where you have a window like this, where where it's a, I mean, I think it's so beautifully put together, just the way that it serves both investors and it in, it upgrades and improves communities. It's I think it's brilliant in essence, but um, I, so I'm, I'm a super fan, obviously, but I don't, I don't know that. And that's why one of the reasons I like what you guys are doing is because you're, you have a campaign to communicate this on a broad scale. And I just see so many of the you know elite folks, all the family offices um, do this, but it just doesn't quite make its way down to Main Street effectively. So that's kind of fun for me. I'm in this space with a lot of you know kind of mom and pop and just above that level investors and real estate professionals. And so to be able to have this conversation and this strategy for folks and see their eyes widen, it's pretty cool. Great. Uh, well, Mike, you've been in in this uh, industry for for quite some time. You're well regarded as an authority in the real estate and mortgage business. Uh, we're, I want to get to Opportunity Zone specifically a little bit more in, in a minute, but zooming out now in light of your expertise, I want to hear your macroeconomic view. So investor sentiment, as I noted in the intro, has been uh, a bit rocky, to say the least, over the last 12 plus months. Uh, the current interest rate environment has changed uh, a whole lot since just a year ago. And there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of hesitancy in the market. 
Many think that we may be headed toward a recession. In fact, we likely were in at least a mini recession for for summer or much of 2022, depending on who you ask. Uh, With all that said, Mike, what's your overall macroeconomic view in light of where we are right now? And in the period that we're in right now, could you possibly say that we're in a period of great opportunity for real estate investors and why? I, I do think so. Um, I have about 300 hours of research specifically into looking at the similarities and differences between the 2008 era and where we are today. And I'm fascinated by that. Um, I want to, if maybe I can speak to a couple of diff- the different points, but to get an understanding of the future, we, you know, I like Mark Twain says this, he says, history doesn't necessarily repeat, but it very much rhymes. And so I want to see the things that are the same and the things that are very different. And there's a lot of things that are very different, a couple that are the same. Like one of the challenges that exists right now is affordability. It's a big pain point. Um, and it's it's one of the things that is causing uh, a combination of both fear and frustration with folks that are looking to get into the residential space. Uh, and a lot, it's come to a screeching halt. And I actually see that as an amazing opportunity. It's worked really well for us. I'll explain why in a minute. But what I don't think most people are realizing is that there's a couple of things that are very different from 2008 that exist today that are going to position this market and those that I think can maximize the opportunities that exist today. Um, one is the tailwinds of demographics. I mean, it is significant. If you look at if you look at what happened during 2008 and 2009, the X generation, there was a dramatic fall off in birth rates from the X generation that happened right during a window. So we had sort of this vacuum of new buyers coming into the marketplace that coincided with about a third of all residential mortgage products being, you know, either adjustable or, um, you know, product risk or client risk where they really couldn't qualify. We all know the story. Um, And in addition to having massive oversupply in the marketplace, we had oversupply, we had a fall off in demand. And then of course, when the the Fed went and started to hike rates during that window and we had all those resets, it was the perfect storm. So the part today, I think a lot of people um, combined with the scary media headlines that we see everywhere, um, a lot of people are just frozen. And what they don't realize is- They're they're worried we're headed toward another 07 or 08 period, right? Exactly. That's right. And so, I mean, you think about it, if you witnessed your parents or you witnessed close people that like lost their home, um, and of course it was the most illiquid market we've had in a hundred years where we're the opposite of that now. Um, So there's a a lot of of people that think if I saw this happen, it's happened this way now, we're going to have a crash. Under the surface is very, very different. And because of that, um, that's why I think we're, we're seeing some significant opportunity. I can unpack that further, but I just, this, this is, when I look to the future, I think we have a window of about a year or so, maybe 18 months where it's very complicated. It's very inefficient. There's a lot of fear. I mean, we know fear and fundamentals drive, or excuse me, psychology and fundamentals drive the marketplace. Fundamentals always win, but in the short term, psychology can swing it. And so I think we've got a window where we've got some some good opportunity for investors. Yeah, what's that uh, Warren Buffett quote that you were that you gave me earlier before we hit record? Yeah, there's there's two that I like. One by Warren Buffett is you be you you be fearful when others are greedy, and then you can be greedy when others are fearful. And then uh, Sir John Templeton, um, his is similar, and he says uh, 
what is it? He says a time of maximum pessimism is the best time to buy. And if you look at the, you know, the housing sentiment index, it has fallen to the lowest level since 2011, just, uh, just recently, recently it's ticked up a little bit, but from, I mean, I'm looking at this chart the other day and I'm thinking how much real estate do I wish I would have bought in 2011? Like if we were to just follow the, you know, do the opposite of the consumer, the housing sentiment index, just as an example, but, uh, yeah, there's, a. Uh, when markets are complicated, I think that's the window for for investors to be able to make their move. Yeah, that's great. So, well, let's unpack it a little bit more. So, potential for this great buying opportunity for real estate investors that exists, you think over the course of the next roughly twelve, maybe eighteen months. What? Well, why is that? Can you can you unpack that a little bit more? And and why that time period? Do you think? You know, well, one of the things that's happening is if if I look at the demographic charts and we look at the millennial generation, I mean, people traditionally buy real estate, um, average age is 33. It might have just ticked up to 34 years old. And when you look at the when you look at the wave of new buyers coming into the marketplace that have to rent or buy, um, that there is the largest wave that we will ever have in this country coming over like the next five to seven years. And like the media is not talking about this part. Like this is a significant wave. And so you can't live in mom and dad's basement forever kind of thing, right? So there's pent up demand that's taking place and it's building because of the combination of affordability and the combination of fear factor. And what a lot of the millennials saw their folks go through and they're just waiting. And there's another part of this that's really interesting, which is the psychology of when people are willing and able to buy. And I saw a poll recently, I'll see if I can get close from memory, but it was when interest rates are in the seven, regardless of affordability, only seven out of a hundred people are wanting to buy and say, I'm good with a 7% interest rate, let's go buy a home. Especially, and that's in light of where we've been recently in the past. When you get into the six, a six handle, you get into the sixes, all of a sudden you open up another eight out of a hundred, eight percent, 15, 15 out of a hundred total that are, you know, let's call it eager and open to buying a home. When you get into the fives, you add another 21 out of a hundred. And when you get into the fours again, you add another, I think it's 30 some percent. And that has to do with just a poll of people. Is my rate in the fours? Is it in the fives, in the six and the sevens? So I say this because we got into the sevens for a while. And so I'm looking at this and this pent up demand that's there. Um, and that is, it's like the tide. It's coming. Maybe like the waves, it takes a while and it does its thing, but the tide is going this direction. And it's the biggest wave we've ever had in US history. And interest rates play a huge role in that. And, and I, I suppose that tide could be helped if interest rates start to drop back a little bit, is that is that your thinking there? It's exactly what I'm thinking. As the Fed gets in front of inflation and tames inflation by you know increasing the federal funds and the discount rate, um, and I mean mortgage rates are going to be pegged to the future expectations of inflation. I mean there's a, there's a correlation. So as the as inflation comes down and we're already seeing it i mean a good part of inflation of course is going to be the you know the housing portion of that um and there's a little trailing reporting to that but as the as the the fed teams inflation and i'm i mean regardless of what they do with short term rates if if they push us into a recession that's actually going to be helpful for helpful for mortgage rates you know separate conversation but my point being as rates drop we're going to end up seeing 
the combination of psychology and affordability improve, and we're going to have this cascade back into the marketplace. Um, and I and I, I mean I I see it firsthand. Just we our group on the mortgage side, we over the last five years we've helped about five thousand families with a purchase or refinance. So I have really good close front end data to see this as well, and it's just come to a screeching halt. And every other conversation, you know, until they get some guidance past this, the 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 saying is, "Yep, I'm waiting for I'm waiting for housing to come down, and I'm waiting for rates to drop." Well, so is everyone else. I mean, it's like so that demand is there. It's not like there's a vacuum of demand, which is very different from 07, 08, and 09. No, that's a really good differentiation to to keep in mind when we're comparing these two different periods of time, for sure. Well, let's shift gears a little bit now. I want to talk opportunity zones with you since it's the opportunity Excellent. zone podcast. So you are the principal and co-founder of Cyrus Opportunity Zone Fund, as I noted in our intro to this interview today. Mike, how is that fund positioned to take advantage of some of these trends that you've laid out before us? And and, and also maybe talk about the uh, the size of the fund being in that that sweet spot too, and how that plays into, into your thinking. Absolutely. There's a the sweet spot for us. There's a couple of different things that give us uh, a, a competitive advantage, and one is uh, one is just being below a lot of the bigger funds, um, and then kind of above where mom and pop, the, where the frenzy is. So we can we can be in a space where we find really significant inefficiencies that exist, and you know, of course, then the uh, generates great returns for us. So that's number one. Number two. When we're buying, just having the, you know, the the two decades worth of relationships, um, we become known as cash buyers for a lot of real estate professionals that bring us what needs to close quick. Hmm. And there's we just we're we we're able to pick and choose a fair amount with a lot of these different projects just because of the combination of longstanding relationships and they know that we perform and so. Um, you know, and then of course we've got sort of an efficient exit strategy with uh, some of the projects that we do. So we 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 build and we uh, we exit efficiently. We're below the Wall Street and above mom and pop. And then the you know the local intel is a big deal. I mean that's something that gives us a competitive advantage. So that's really the space that we stay in. And I, I mean I I have fund management experience back through the Great Recession myself and. Uh, you know, a handful of, uh, of of other partners, we put together a fund and we, we um, bought a lot of properties at auction and we went through the exit process. And so one of the key lessons I learned in the past was at, we got to a place at one point where we had too much cash on the sidelines. We couldn't deploy it. Other bigger funds came in and started buying at price points that we knew weren't comfortable with and didn't fit our model. And as a result, we had cash on the side and that dilutes returns. So now that lesson has served me very well today. We're much more strategic about, you know, sort of inflow of money and opportunity that exists to be able to make sure that we can be as efficient as possible and strategic with our returns. So thought I'd share that as well. So I'm, I like this market. I mean, I, this, this is a, this is a saying I just heard recently, but it was um, a formula one driver. And he said on a sunny day, I can pass two or three people, but on a rainy day, I can pass 15 people. And I feel like when it's complicated out there, guess what? We can gain market share because a lot of people don't want to deal with the complications or maybe they don't have the, you know, the intel or relationships. Yeah. And I think it helps that you have that experience being a fund manager, uh, what, I guess, uh, 15 years ago now and, and being yep. through that previous 
down cycle gives you experience uh, that that maybe a lot of um, newer or first time fund managers may not have. That's that's invaluable experience that you can't really learn from a textbook. You have to you have to live through it, right? Uh, so let's let, let's talk more about your your local intel. I wanted to to unpack that a little bit more. You've been in the mortgage business, uh, had a successful mortgage business for for quite a number of years. Maybe you could tell us how much in your in your answer here. Um, but but curious to learn how helpful that's really been for you in being able to leverage the relationships that you've built in that business over the years to be able to source deals and help you build up that OZ fund. It's it's uh, the the two business models complement each other very well, and because of the mortgage business, we're the go to for. We've become really have developed an expertise at just managing debt really really well for clients, and part of that is the financial planning background. It's just how do we manage debt over time and do that and help clients be super efficient. And so the team does that very very well by having this mortgage business and being a partner in this mortgage business, we've got a tremendous amount of uh, really strong relationships with uh, real estate professionals all throughout Southern California. And because of that, and because of the um, because of the fund and our you know appetite for buying, um, we just have local Intel. And I think that I mean, it seems like it seems like the the world works through who you know and you you have to, you know, it's like you you have to have a really good model, but over time when there's relationships and you know that there's predictability in a particular relationship, we all get into patterns in life. And so we have a lot of uh, really savvy real estate professionals that they will give us a, a you know heads up on a, on a property. This situation's coming up. It needs to close quick. Need a cash offer. Are you interested? And so we'll just run through and see if it fits our model, but we get a lot of looks at things that others don't. And I attribute that to you know, the many years in the mortgage business and just being a go-to for many of the real estate professionals that we work with. Hey, can we dive into your Opportunity Zone fund a, a little bit more now? I'm curious to hear exactly what the fund's strategy is. First of all, which which asset classes are you developing primarily? Right. So we're building out a hundred units in the, um, you know, the build to rent strategy for that'll be a, we'll, we'll have that as a run for the next number of years. And then we have a, a lot of fix and flip projects that we do that are obviously very heavy rehab just to be able to meet the OZ parameters. So the combination of those two um, is a formula that we've noticed is really strong with returns. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll find dirt and uh, or or projects or maybe something that's uh, um, got started and then um, buy it for the right price and work work through the exit. So we're in development on uh, about 40 of the units right now, and uh, we're always looking at other land and other opportunities. And, and, and again, like matching incoming funds with opportunity as we see it. And that's the again, that was my big lesson from 15 years ago is not to get a whole bunch of cash and then have to find a place for it to land. I'd rather be much more careful uh, in, in uh, matching cash with opportunities as they develop. So I really like the fix and flip model. We just have a turnkey system for it and a handful of acquisition managers that are really good at you know, bringing, bringing the different deals to the surface. And then of course, building out the build to rent units over time, um, just generate real steady returns. So I, I like the model. I'm very happy with it. And I think that especially in Southern California, um, there's just such a shortage of housing and serving sort of the lower end of the marketplace 
Um, we know that there's going to be a tailwind for based on demographics and rental support, you know, for the next number of years. Great. Yeah. You're in the Southern California area. I was about to ask about that. Where exactly are the opportunity zones that you're developing in? Is it entirely in the Inland Empire region? And and for those unfamiliar with Southern California, the greater Los Angeles area, maybe you can describe where that lies in relationship to uh, downtown LA. Sure. Absolutely. We, we are, um, uh, San Bernardino is where the majority of our work is. There's pockets of, uh, OZ in Pomona and Ontario and a great, good cross section of San Bernardino, um, the high desert there's OZ. We've got enough OZ around us and to be able to, you know, to, to spend the majority of our time in that area. And we just know the area so well that we know where the inefficiencies are, especially with the local Intel. So most of it's going to be Riverside, San Bernardino County. Um, but our, you know, our, our model is to, we're opportunistic. So if there's something that is, that is, um, you know, in an area that we're comfortable with, um, we'll, we'll evaluate it. Uh, we just have the expertise and boots on the ground and model that works in San Bernardino and Riverside. And then the fix and flip model, I wanted to revisit that because that's interesting. Most real estate opportunity zone funds, at least the ones I've come across, are development ground up construction funds because it's just much easier to to clear the that new construction hurdle than it is substantial improvement. Do you find challenges with with being able to to adhere to the substantial improvement uh, provision in, in with the opportunity zone uh, policy? needing we, to double the basis in in the buildings that you're working on or do you blend it into a larger fund so it 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 ends up working out uh we have some that we blend in but we're we're very careful on that i mean part of what we do is we're not afraid of the super heavy rehab i mean it it li- obviously limits what we're able to do um but what we found is that uh you know in this market like especially right now we're getting we're get, i think a lot of folks that were in this business before um, a lot of the folks that were maybe, you know, playing the hard money game and banking on, you know, pretty rapid real estate appreciation, there's a lot of people exiting. And so we're finding that we're able to buy quite a bit deeper now. Um, so yeah, it's it's not simple. I mean, we just filter the things that we look at and have a number of different horse, uh, sources. There's some wholesale channels. We've got our, of course, our, a lot of our, our realtor partners that keep an eye out for us. And then a couple acquisition managers that do this aggressively. So we just, it fits the model or it doesn't. And, you know, if we can buy deep enough, you know, better than 70 cents on the dollar, have super efficient, um, you know, rehab and crew that crew that a uh, couple crews that are just, you know, very efficient with us. Um, we find it works. So um, we'll see how the market unfolds. I mean, one of the, one of the things that's a wild card right now is in fact, I was doing a talk this morning and polling the audience on how many people thought rates would be in the sevens next year versus in this range versus below five. And it was pretty even across the board that, you know, people that think different things are going to happen. So it's either way is okay for us because if rates get quite a bit higher, that means that real estate is complicated more in the short term. And that gives us some better buying opportunities. Um, and in my opinion, over the next couple of years, uh, interest rates do have to come down for a series of reasons. And that gives us and brings the affordability down and brings the tailwind into the marketplace. So I kind of hope it's complicated for the next 12 to 18 months. That would be even better for us, you know, but either way, I'm good with the model because 
of enough that we can buy deep enough that that uh, makes our model work. Sure. And uh, the, the 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 sector that you're in, primarily these build for rent or or fix and flip residential properties. Are you in any other type of sectors? Are you doing any office or industrial or is it all residential? Nope. It's all residential. That's the space that I know and love and have all the relationships. So um, if if we have something that comes to us that's outside of that and we can buy really deep and it's, you know, again, both uh, small enough and big enough, then we'll look at it. But we're going to we're going to stay in the area that we know best. Um, short of bringing in some some significant expertise that uh, that could help there, but I just I've learned over the years stick to what you know best. Um, I, you know, a, a, the prior version of me would chase a thousand things at once and be <laughs> mediocre at all of them. And you know, I've found that life's a lot simpler if you can just be excellent in one area. So that's where we're going. Got to learn to say no sometimes, which can be hard. It, it's <laughs> not easy. It is not easy, but yeah, got to learn to say no. I, I heard this recently. I thought it was pretty well said. It was every every time you say yes to something or someone, you have to remember you are saying no to someone else or something else. And so the way it was described is, you know, if it's not if it's not some if it's outside it's not something that you would clear your schedule for, then you say no. Like you have a premeditated plan that you know works. And then if there's something that comes up that in any given day you'd clear your schedule for because it's that good, you can say yes to that. Otherwise say no and stick to the plan that you know works. Good good rule to live by there. Yeah, there's an opportunity cost when you say yes to a, a new idea or 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 any any new uh, new concept. Uh, well, at, at risk of, of uh, having you give me the same general answer you gave me uh, toward the top of the the interview today, I wanted to you know take the last few minutes here to zoom out from opportunity zones a little bit and and get your broader perspective on on private equity real estate in general, residential and, and non-residential, just all private equity real estate, given your expertise uh, in the mortgage industry. What are some trends in that private equity real estate industry that you think is worth keeping an eye on over the next three, five, 10 years? Got it. No, that's a that's a great question. I mean, I'm such a I'm such a macro individual and I'm looking at inventory levels and I'm looking at demographics that are coming in and then how the, you know, how the uh impact of, you know, policy and fiscal policy is going to impact the direction we're going. You know, something that I don't have expertise in, but I'm super curious about is sort of housing alternatives like these micro homes that exist. And mm-hmm. um, you know, there's there's I'm seeing, you know, the different, um, um, you know, box homes. And there's some other creative things that are coming out. One of the challenges that exists in real estate, of course, is the development costs just from a administrative standpoint, just to get up and running is prohibitive. But in, in California, we just have such a dramatic undersupply of homes and a population that, um, you know, in a lower end of the market housing challenge um, that, you know, policymakers are looking to find ways to how can they partner with folks that are going to help solve this problem so i mean it's it's a deep issue and it's one of the things that gives us confidence from like the bread and butter part of our model which is just the you know the basic development side um so macro level i mean i'm at one of the one in fact i want to i want to share something else just related to mortgage rates and one of the reasons that i actually think uh 
think that they'll be coming down in a little bit is you typically have between the 10-year treasury and 30-year mortgage rates, you typically have a spread of about 170 to 200 basis points. Mm. And it got up as high as 300 basis points spread. It's now down to about 260 plus or minus. Um, point being that the, that gap has to close. And so there's an argument that 30-year mortgage rates really should be instead of in the mid sixes, you know, in the in the fives. Um, and so um, there's a, there is some future relief on affordability that's coming that I think is going to give us a really good tailwind um, from an affordability standpoint that's desperately needed. But those are the things that I enjoy is sort of the you know the behavioral science of this, the the generational shifts and trends that are taking place. And then the macroeconomic side and how that all plays into to real estate, in addition to the, I think some of the the inefficiencies that exist. So it's a it's a pretty interesting world we're in right now. I mean, we're right now at the bottom of um, two pretty severe cycles. Of course, one is a seasonal cycle, and the other one is a once a generational cycle. Um, and so those cycle changes pose a lot of complication and a lot of opportunity. Um, but that's what that's what excites me. Yeah, uh, definitely some interesting period of time, point in time that we are living in currently. That would be really welcome news for for home buyers and and for affordability in general. If we could get mortgage rates uh, to come down just a little bit here, uh, well, w- what do you think could be a potential solution to this huge shortfall of housing units that we need? Affordable housing units we need. In this country, I mean, depending on who you ask, we're short maybe three million or four million or five million units across the country. Is it is it a, a matter of policy? And if so, you know what what might be a potential solution? Um, I understand we're kind of running low on time here, so I'm asking you to do the impossible. Give me the quick two minute version of a, of the solution to one of this nation's huge problems, Mike. Well, I mean, part of it is a, you know, development costs. Sometimes to get a home up and off the ground, you're looking at six figures of cost just to be able to clear the hurdle and start. And so it's not affordable for a lot of builders to build. And so, you know, part of that, part of that challenge is, uh, you know, the various, you know, city and regulatory fees that exist. Um, There just needs to be, I think they're having, having policy that fast tracks um, and is much more understanding of the pain points. I mean, that these are things that I don't particularly enjoy politics, not even a little bit. In fact, like I just, I'm, I love the investment world and I love, I love how people think, but from an incentive standpoint, there's just a misalignment from what uh, government is wanting and needing um, in housing. And then the hurdle to jump over to actually put that in place. So there just needs to be massive reform in order for that to happen. I understand there's some things that are freeing up to be able to, you know, build units where you couldn't build units before, and that will help. That'll take years to catch up. From a macro side, we need about, I think it's 1.5 million new new builds to offset the increase in population. And we're somewhere, again, to your point earlier, between three and 5 million homes short based on you know, what data you're looking at. So uh, the, the real issue is some sort of out-of-the-box creative thinking or massive uh, regulatory change that just clears the path um, at an affordable level that allows a builder to also make a fair profit. I mean, at the end of the day, the way our country works is if, uh, you know, if there's not if there's not a profit incentive there, then 
you know, water seeks the lowest level. And I, that's the challenge is that things are just misaligned. So that needs to change. How to get that done? That requires a, another level of passion and skill set that is uh, at a, a different place than mine. But um, we'll see how it, sh- it it will get forced and it will have to happen because, you know, the economy will require it. And uh, yeah, Jimmy, we'll see where it goes. Very good, Mike. Uh, well, we, we've just about run out of time. Thanks so much for all of the insights that you've given my audience and me today. Uh, Before we go, where can our audience of high net worth investors and advisors go to learn more about you and the Cyrus Opportunity Zone Fund? Sure, absolutely. Our website is cyrusozfund.com. And uh, my my, uh, email is uh, mike at cyrusozfund.com. That would be best for any questions. And uh, yep, our sweet spot is uh, in the residential space um, and it'll be an interesting 18 months and we'll see what sort of, uh, we'll see which way the wind blows, but either way, we'll be positioned for it. Yeah, an incredible opportunity indeed. And uh, of course, for our listeners and viewers out there today, I will have show notes available as always on the Opportunity DB website. You can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And there I will have links to all of the resources that Mike and I discussed on today's show. And of course, please be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast listening platform to always get the latest episodes. Mike, thanks again so much for taking some time today. Awesome. Jimmy, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by Opportunity DB. You can access our show notes by visiting opportunitydb.com forward slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. 